have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. It is your word for your people. You mean it for our benefit. You mean it to do us good. You mean to reveal yourself in this word. You mean to remind us of our sin and point us to the Savior and show us the gospel. And because this is your word, we need your spirit to understand it. And more importantly, we need your spirit to believe it, to trust in you, to act upon your word, to live the Christian life. So by your spirit, help us to understand, to believe, and to live the truth of your word. And so we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. There is a uh, celebrated book by Andrew Solomon, and it's entitled, Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity. and examines the shock and response of parents who discover that the child born to them is not like them, but instead is deaf, a dwarf, has Down syndrome, is autistic, is chronically ill, or is disabled in some way. And Dr. Solomon presents a series of incredibly well-written and sympathetic case studies of families who faced each of these conditions and more. He starts with his own story of as a gay son of heterosexual parents and how that was viewed some 30-some years ago. And then drawing on 10 years of research and interviews with more than 300 families, he mines the eloquence of ordinary people facing extreme challenges. These children always represent a crisis to the family into which they come. And yet Solomon's bottom line finding was this. The book's conundrum, his words, is that most of the families described here have ended up grateful for experiences they would have done anything to avoid. They have ended up grateful for experiences they would have done anything to avoid. This, of course, fits far better with an ancient uh, understanding of suffering 
uh, pretty much any understanding of suffering prior to World War II. It's not the interruption of a life, but as the crucial part of a good life. One of the most interesting things to see is how often religion slips into so many of the descriptions of these families in this book and how they've come to terms with their children. And this is true despite the fact that Solomon himself is not religious and has no such agenda. Now, one caveat here as I describe this, the word retarded is used often. And I know it's not politically correct. But quickly looking into the medical literature online, it seems that it's still used both as a medical uh, and a technical term. It's not used as a pejorative term or as an insult. But essentially to describe someone who does not have Down syndrome, but has Downs-like symptoms. So please don't freak out or be offended when you hear it, because it's going to come up a couple of times. Um, in, the, in this book, there is one amazing story about a set of parents named David and Sarah. And they gave birth to a blind infant son who was severely both physically and mentally handicapped. And his name was Jamie. And he grew up not being able to sit up on his own and not being able to roll over through his whole life. They then had another child, a girl named Liza, who was born without any handicaps, and then they had another son, Sam, who turned out to be even more neurologically handicapped than Jamie was. And incredibly, Sarah, the mom, told Dr. Solomon this actual quote, If we had known that the condition might be repeated, we would not have risked it. Having said that, if I were told we can just wipe out that experience of having a second handicapped child, I wouldn't. It absolutely blows my mind the impact that a blind, retarded, nonverbal, non-ambulatory person has had on people. He has a way of opening and touching people that we can't come near. That's part of our survival story, our marveling at how he has moved so many people, end quote. The day after they learned their first child was blind and handicapped, Sarah said to David, I don't know why I'm saying this, but I feel very strongly that we need to have Jamie baptized. And that impulse sort of was a surprise to both of them because neither of them had gone to church in years. But Sarah explained, I think I was acknowledging that Jamie had a soul. And that's a crucial move for parents to make. To love and to care for their son, they had to know that he was truly human. And they turned away from all the modern philosophies of what it means to be human and turned back to an older understanding of human nature, which consists of both body and soul. And because all human beings, whether brilliant or retarded, are made in the image of God. Sarah and David's children are all grown now. Jamie and Sam are still profoundly handicapped. But I think my favorite part of the story reading through this is when Liza, the middle child, took two weeks off from work to come home and read a set of children's books that are heavy with Christian symbolism. She took two weeks off from work to come home and sit down with her mentally handicapped brother, Jamie, 
in order to read to him the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. That's awesome. I love that. Elegantly reported by a spectacularly original and compassionate thinker, Far From the Tree explores how people who love each other must struggle to accept each other in the midst of suffering and hardship. And that's a theme in every family's life. That's a theme in every church's life. That's a theme in chapter 3 of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. So let's turn there now. And we're going to start with the first and last verse. Because they continue this theme and show us the hardness of life. The hardness of life. Verses 1 and 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, jumping to verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So we're going through the book of Ephesians, which is about the church, and we come to chapter 3. And honestly, most teachers and preachers who go into the book of Ephesians tend to skip past this particular passage. And when I look back over my own teaching and preaching, I haven't gone there very much myself. In fact, I found exactly one sermon on this passage, and it was just awful. So hopefully after today you won't think, well, now he has two awful sermons on this passage. Here's the reason it gets skipped over. You see, in the middle of that very first sentence, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and there's a dash. You know why? Smack in the middle of this sentence, he just breaks off. And he actually goes into this long sort of prayer-like explanation. He doesn't come out of it again until verse 13, when he gets back to his subject in verse 14, which actually begins again with, for this reason. It seems that, you know, he's writing this, and he has this sudden thought. And he kind of rambles. And unlike most of his writing, it's not very well structured. And it sounds so theological, yet I think it's very practical. So why does Paul break off? He's pointing out that he's writing from prison. And then suddenly he thinks of something. And we know what that is, because in verse 13 he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Paul knew that his being in prison is a huge discouragement to his friends in the church. So right in the middle of the sentence, he breaks off, addresses it, and tries to help them. There is no book in the world more realistic about the inevitability of suffering and the hardness of life. Life is hard, and it's not just hard for bad people. The good people, even the best people, suffer serious pain, huge disappointments, significant tragedies. The Bible shows us that head on. Paul's no different than any other author in the Bible because as soon as he thinks of this uh, fact that these people are really struggling over the things that happened to me, I mean, he doesn't just say, suck it up, cupcake. I might say that, but the Apostle Paul doesn't. Rather, they're struggling with suffering. And he doesn't ignore it, but he engages them. 
And that's how the Bible is. The Bible engages us on the reality of suffering. The reason that it engages us is sometimes suffering shakes our faith. Remember the story of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist is in prison. And he's suffering, and it's shaken his faith. And he's about to be executed, and he sends some people with a message to Jesus. In Matthew 11, verse 3, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? He's filled with doubts. Why? Because he's in prison. He's about to die. And what he's really saying is, if you're the Messiah, how can I be in this situation? If you're really a son of God, why is my life falling apart? Do you remember how Jesus answers him? Or actually sends a message back to him? He says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's an amazing response. Here you have Paul's friends feeling essentially the same way about Paul's suffering. If you're really a servant of God... If this God is really so good, why is all this bad stuff happening to you? And in many ways, and most of you know this, when someone you love is suffering, then you're suffering too. There's often a feeling of helplessness. And in verse 13, he actually says, I ask you not to lose heart. It's actually the word means disheartened. And, uh, You know, you think about those situations, it's like your heart gets taken out of you. You know, you get down, you get numb. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to do that. He's trying to help them because he knows life is hard and that we need help to deal with it. All the rest of the verses here, verses 2 through 12, sort of in the middle of those bookends, are how Paul is helping them. He says, I know you need help, so here's the help. And just what is that help? Well, he starts with, The mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ, verses 2 through 5. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now the word that comes up the most in this whole passage is mystery. Paul says it's his job to proclaim a mystery. So what does the word mystery mean? When you and I hear the English word mystery, it actually conveys something that's almost the exact opposite of what Paul means. So we have a little bit of a translation problem here. When you and I think of a mystery, you think of what? Something hidden from you that it's your job to discover. Joanne and I love reading mysteries, and we love watching mysteries. Well, maybe me more than her, but she loves me, so she watches them with me. And my current favorite is the Longmire Mystery Series, both the books and the TV shows. 
And when you watch a mystery, the truth is hidden from you until the end, and it's your job to try to figure it out. You spend your time guessing who done it. You're sitting there trying to figure it out. A mystery is something hidden from you that it's your job to discover, except for here. The word mystery, as Paul uses it, means exactly the opposite. It means not something hidden that you have to discover, but something revealed by God because you would never discover it on your own. It's counterintuitive. You'd never figure it out by a process of reasoning. In other words, a mystery is an astonishing revelation, something revealed to you that goes completely against anything that you would have guessed. We might say it's something that blows your mind. So what's this mystery? Well, whenever Paul uses the word mystery, it sort of has two parts. The first part is it always has something to do with the gospel. Another word that comes up over and over again uh, three times here is grace. The gospel of grace, your salvation by grace, is the first part of this great mystery. Now I want to contrast that with the law. Because, you know, remember we looked briefly at the Ten Commandments when we went through Exodus, and uh, we're going to look at it in more detail come next summer. But I want you to notice the Ten Commandments are never called a mystery in the Bible. The golden rule is never called a mystery. Why? Let's think this out uh, for a minute. The gospel is not that you live a good life, obey the Ten Commandments, live by the golden rule, God will bless you, hear your prayers, and take you to heaven. That is not the gospel. Why? Because it makes too much sense. It's exactly what you think. If I live according to the golden rule, you know, I don't lie, I don't murder, I don't steal. Ten Commandments, golden rule. They're never called mysteries because they're common sense. Almost all the religions of the world know them. Most people know them. Everybody understands them. It makes sense. And the gospel is not that. So what is the gospel? The gospel is that the Son of God came to earth and triumphed through weakness and suffering. He won through losing. He gained everything by giving it all away. He overcame your sin and my sin by taking it on himself. As a result, when you become a Christian, when you're in Christ, you are, as Luther said, Martin Luther has all the best quotes, simultaneously justified and a sinner. Simultaneously, you're a big sinner. Hope that's not new news to anybody. If so, please come talk to me. And yet, you're loved, you're affirmed, you're pardoned, you're accepted, you're delighted in. You're simultaneously a terrible sinner and yet absolutely forgiven and completely accepted in God's sight. That's a mystery. Why? Because it's counterintuitive. It goes against common sense. It's not what you would expect. It goes against all your instincts that, in spite of how bad you are, you're saved by sheer grace. The law of God is never called a mystery because the idea that you're saved by being good makes sense. The idea that you're saved by grace, that you're simultaneously sinful and yet righteous in his sight, makes no sense to our way of thinking. 
And so here's what you have to consider. If you decide to live by that sort of first framework, I'm going to live a good life, obey the Ten Commandments, live by the golden rule, that God will accept me and take me to heaven. And that, that sounds like it makes sense, but as time goes on, it will crush you. Because nobody can live up to it. But if you live by the gospel and you're saved by sheer grace, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you used to be, you're completely accepted in Christ. And at first it doesn't make sense. But as time goes on, it'll become more and more wonderful, more and more liberating. The more you look at it, because it's a mystery, because it's counterintuitive, this astonishing revelation of God, the more wisdom and grace you're going to see in it. So the question is, is the gospel an astounding wonder to you? If it is, you never get tired of thinking about it. You're always fascinated by it. You're like the angels in 1 Peter 1.12 who endlessly long to look into the gospel. Why? Because it's amazing. It's a counterintuitive, astonishing wonder. There's unfathomable depths to it. You're always seeing new things. You're always being freed in new ways. You never get to the bottom of it. And so it's been said, if you feel that you really understand the gospel, then you probably don't. But if you can say, I can hardly even begin to grasp the depths of the gospel, that means you're starting to get it. The mystery is the gospel of God's grace as it's found in Jesus Christ. And it's a wonder of grace that Paul's talking about here in Ephesians. Is the gospel that to you? Is it a wonder? If you're beginning to understand just how amazing the gospel really is, then you may be ready for the next step, which is the ministry of grace, verses 6 through 9. The ministry of grace. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who has created all things. So what do I mean by the ministry of grace? Paul's saying it's his job, his calling, to be a preacher and a missionary of this gospel of grace. He's actually saying it's his goal in life to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the brilliance of the gospel. First of all, he calls himself the least of all the saints. Now, you know, there's other places he'll speak of himself as the least of the apostles, but here he goes further. I'm the least of all the saints. In other words, Paul's reminding them that once upon a time, he was the single greatest threat to the survival of Christianity in this world. If you look back in Christian history in the first century, and you had to rate who's the person who came closest to snuffing out Christianity, wouldn't be Nero, wouldn't be any of the Roman empires. It'd be a man named Saul of Tarsus, who almost strangled Christianity in its crib. And now God has called him and changed his name to Paul and sent him out to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
And he's saying, friends, you don't understand. I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to be alive. I ought to be a greasy spot on the ground somewhere where God in his judgment just zapped me. That's what I deserve. But he's given me the privilege of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. And you're right, that's not fair. Because that's grace. So you don't need to be discouraged by my suffering. Think about it. For a person like me to be able to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, that's more than any man uh, could ask for who's done the things that I've done. Not only that, he goes on to say, verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. In other words, he says, not only do I get to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, I get to preach something that Moses didn't get to preach, that Isaiah didn't get to preach, that David didn't get to preach, that Daniel didn't get to preach, that Malachi didn't get to preach, that John the Baptist didn't get to preach. I get to preach a message that he didn't give to the great prophets of the Old Testament. I got to tell the people of God about this unfolding plan, this mystery of God which he's accomplished in Christ Jesus where he's abolished the dividing wall that separated Jew and Gentile. And he's brought Jew and Gentile together in his church, in his family. Look back at verse 6. This is the second part of the mystery. First part, saved by grace. Second part, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery is that the Gentiles, by the way, that's most of you, fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow recipients of God's grace. They're fellow heirs of the kingdom. They're fellow members of the body. They're fellow recipients of God's promises. That's the mystery Paul's talking about. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. They inherit what was promised to God's people from the time of Abraham. They are fellow members. They're just as much a part of the body as the descendants of Abraham who trusted in the one true God. And they're fellow recipients or fellow partakers of the promises, the promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to all the children of Israel. Those promises belong now to the Gentile believers in Christ as well. That's the mystery. So if the mystery is the gospel and the mystery is this reconciliation, then reconciliation is an essential part of the gospel. It's not an add-on. It's not an extra thing. It is an essential part of the gospel. And despite being in prison, Paul rejoices. I got to preach that message. Isaiah didn't get to preach that message. Jeremiah didn't get to preach that message. Moses didn't get to preach that message. I got to preach that message. Do not lose heart over my suffering. I take this suffering 10,000 times over to be able to preach this message, to be able to tell people about the unfolding plan of God in history. And how is that going to happen? What's the main way in which the gospel's brilliance and the wisdom is shown to the world? Paul says something that's even further amazing over all the other amazing stuff he's already said. 
He moves from making the mystery of Christ known to making the ministry of grace known to the wisdom made known, verses 10 through 12. He says that, so that, key phrase, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. How will the world see most clearly the purpose of God, this incredible good news of what God is doing in Christ? What's the clearest way that the world can see what God is doing? It says in verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Manifold wisdom, that word manifold means brilliant, the brilliant wisdom of God. The brilliant gospel should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms through the church. That's breathtaking. He's saying it's the community. It's not any one individual, as great as any one person could be. It's through the Christian community. It's through healed relationships. It's through the church that the world can most readily see this incredible future that God is preparing for us. We've been talking about what he means. He says the healing of racial divisions inside the church is only a foretaste of a time when all the hostile elements in creation will be united. All the things that fall apart right now will be put back together. All the mutually hostile elements in creation will be united, and it's the church that gives people a taste of what that's going to be. And he goes on and says, the church, therefore, is to be a new society, not just a fellowship, a new society in which this world can see what family life, what business and economic practices, what race relations, what all of life will be under the healing kingship of Jesus Christ. God is out to heal all the effects of sin, psychological, social, and physical, and the place where people can most clearly see it will be in the church. It says the manifold wisdom of God can be seen now in a church in a way that no one person can show it to the world. But he goes even further. He says, not just the world, but it's the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we're way up in the nosebleed seats right now. Stay with me for a second. The Apostle Paul is saying that God has put you on the stage of history. And that when you look up into the galleries and into those expensive boxes... You're going to see the angelic powers of heaven, good and evil, because God is putting them in graduate school to learn from you about his wisdom and his glory. In other words, God is going to display his glory to good angels and bad angels. He's going to display the wisdom of his plan to the principalities and powers through you as the church going to say, Satan, you remember when you told Job that I wasn't worth living for? Let me show you something. Exhibit A. Here are my people. These are people from every tribe and tongue and nation. They come from every conceivable background. Some of their cultures and nations war against each other. Some of their cultures and nations hate each other. Some of these people have absolutely nothing in common with one another. 
from the standpoint of personality or society <coughs> or economic status. And just look at them. In Christ, I've brought them together as a family. They love one another. They love my word. They love me. I have heaped on them the inexhaustible riches of Christ. Behold, exhibit A as the demonstration of my wisdom, my salvation, my redemption, my grace, my glory. Look at the church. And so the Apostle Paul says, friends, don't lose heart over my suffering. I die a thousand deaths to be able to tell people this message, that it's God's plan to manifest his wisdom and glory to the whole universe through you, so that Satan himself will have to shut his mouth before the awesome display of God's grace and power, that the angels themselves are left dumbfounded at what the power of God can do. Paul says, my friends, God has a glorious purpose for you, his church. I have the privilege of proclaiming it. Don't cry for me. Don't lose heart for me. That's amazing grace. But what's the problem? Say, Dave, it may work for the Apostle Paul, but you may have noticed I'm not the Apostle Paul. I don't like pain. I don't want to hurt. I don't see good coming out of it. I can't see what God is doing in my suffering. I'm not proclaiming the mystery of Christ or the wisdom of God. I'm just crying. I'm just suffering. Let me tell you about a little girl. The students that were in youth group Wednesday know what's coming. 2 Kings 5 brings us the famous story of Naaman. And through the story of two sufferers, the powerful Naaman and an anonymous little girl, we see the answer to one of the biggest questions we have. What is God doing in my pain? What if God has a much bigger purpose in your pain than you could ever imagine? Naaman has been this incredibly powerful general until he discovers he has leprosy. Then he realizes how fragile and fleeting Everything is. What's God trying to say to you in your pain? What if the big problem in your life was put there by God to wake you up? You think what you need most is the resolution to your pain and suffering. But what if God, in your pain, had something for you that was even better than a cure? What if this thing was so valuable that after you found it, you wouldn't even think to mention the healing. That's what happened to Naaman. Naaman eventually got healed. He whined about it. He complained about it. Went to see Prophet Elisha. Elisha said, go wash in this river. He said, that's a little dinky river. We got like real rivers back where I live. And his servants were like, what do you got to lose? Wash in the river, you know. And he does and he's healed. But the first thing he mentions after being healed wasn't the leprosy. It's not the healing. He doesn't even thank the prophet. It's a simple statement, 2 Kings 5.15. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Naaman wanted the prophet Elisha to heal him. And Elisha knew that Naaman needed to see that healing comes from God, not from Elisha. 
And it's that realization that God did the healing that left Naaman stunned. And the point of Naaman's story isn't that every leper gets healed. The point is to show us sometimes God uses your pain to bring you to himself. That's a long blank there in your outline. God uses your pain to bring you to himself. And so some of us need to recognize the pain in our lives as God's appointed and merciful spot, revealing that we're not as well put together as we thought we were. It could be physical pain. It could be a fear that paralyzes you. It could be a habit you can't break. It could be a problem in your marriage. Whatever it is, that spot could be pointing to a deeper problem, separation from God. And if your pain wakes you up to that deeper soul problem, it's worth it. You know, the hero of Naaman's story isn't Naaman. And it's not even the prophet Elisha. It's the little girl. We learn in 2 Kings 5.2 that Naaman's wife has a young servant girl, an Israelite. Naaman had, quote, carried her off on one of his raids, which is a nice way of saying that he kidnapped her to be a slave, almost certainly murdering her family in the process. And how would you respond to the person who burned your village to the ground, murdered your family, and kidnapped you? If it was me, I'd probably be thrilled that Naaman got leprosy. Serves you right. And I get to watch his decrepit old body fall apart and die. I shared this story with our youth group on Wednesday night. I picked on Heidi Vanderlinden to be the little girl in the story. And I asked her how she would feel if someone came and burned her town to the ground and killed her parents and her brothers and her sisters, sorry Grace, and it forced her to be a slave. She said, that would be horrible. I especially like the moment one of the other students turned to Seth and said, dude, you just got whacked. <laughs> she come to youth group. It's awesome. And then I asked Heidi what she thought of this guy Naaman who had done all this bad stuff. Who had really hurt her and made her suffer. She said, I hate that guy. I would poison his soup. How would you react when you hear that he's come down with leprosy? She said, good. It's what he deserves. And she was right. You want him to die, right? Almost the whole group said, yeah. And then we had to read what the little girl actually said in 2 Kings 5, verse 3, where we read, she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria he would cure him of his leprosy. She seems to actually care about him. But he's a bad guy. He killed her family, burned her village, took her as a slave, and yet remarkably, she seems to have forgiven him. How does that happen? Because sometimes in the midst of devastating suffering, God uses your pain to bring others to himself. Asked a couple of the kids, what if you had terrible suffering, but great benefit came to your sibling? They were not excited uh, by that response. So, like I said, a lot of fun. But this little girl gives us this incredible Old Testament picture of Jesus. 
She suffered because of Naaman's sin, and her suffering became the means of his salvation. Think about it. Had she not been in this situation, Naaman would have never heard about the prophet Elisha. His story is more than a story of God's sovereign power of, over disease. It's a story of God's sovereign mercy conquering human evil and suffering. God used this little girl to give Naaman the mercy of healing and of saving faith. God used this little girl to give the Syrian people the mercy of seeing his reality and power and glory, a mercy they desperately need again today. And God used this little girl to preserve the testimony of his mercy to undeserving sinners that's been retold to billions of people for thousands of years. And like this little girl, the Apostle Paul suffered so that he could proclaim the mystery of Christ and the ministry of grace and the wisdom of God might be shown in the life of the church that he planted. And in the same way, our salvation comes through a suffering servant. Like this little girl, Jesus suffered because of our sin. His suffering on the cross became the means by which we could have our sins washed away. And instead of hating us for causing that suffering, he forgave us and kept loving us. The gospel is that the Son of God came to earth and triumphed through suffering. He overcame your sin and my sin by taking it on himself. As a result, when you become a Christian, when you are in Christ, you're simultaneously a sinner and yet you're loved, you're accepted, you're forgiven, and God delights in you. And all of that was accomplished by his suffering and his death. And when you come to this table, you proclaim his death until he comes again. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your word, by your son, by your spirit. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Thank you, Father, for this rambling prayer. But it's a pastor's heart we have in Paul. We pray that you would show us how we can take these incredible truths and Bring them down into our lives and become people who can face our pain with grace and faith in the gospel. Lord, show us how to look into it and find what we need for the next day and the next day and the next day. Lord, your purposes stagger us. We don't deserve to know things that Isaiah didn't know. We don't deserve to know things that Moses didn't know. We don't deserve to be the instrument by which you're going to display your wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. But that's what you say in your word, so we believe you. Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. And enable us to proclaim the true suffering servant, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us and now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Stand for the benediction. Remind you, there is a fellowship lunch afterwards. So we will see you there.
Hear the Lord's blessing from 2 Thessalonians. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. God bless you. We'll see you at lunch.